The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. When Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he said to his disciples, who do the people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, and some say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. As the Archbishop and Primate of the Anglican Church in North America, it's a true joy to be back here at Christ Church. I want to thank you for your leadership and for your service to the province. Uh, thank you as well for your prayers for Allison and me as we we're on this adventure serving the Lord in this capacity. Uh, the prayers of God's people make all the difference, and I really thank you for that. I also want to say thank you to Father Paul for his ministry and leadership in this place and also through the province. And, and I have to confess to you, uh, Father Stephen and I go back a long way, and uh, so don't ask him too many questions about me, okay? Because he may say some things I don't want you to know. Uh, Christ Church has an important role to play in the province. In my mind, you are a provincial parish with ministries that touch every facet of the province. Your potential to impact North America is huge and I'm grateful for your leadership and for your servanthood. The Anglican Church in North America, our mission is to reach North America with the transforming love of Jesus Christ. And thank you for your part in that. And thank you for your leadership in that. Let's pray. Father, as we open your word this morning, we pray that you would come forth in the power of your Holy Spirit. Come and open our ears, open our eyes, Help us to see and hear from you this day, that Jesus would be honored and his word proclaimed. Amen. There's a question which ranks high above every other question. There's a question which is so important it determines the quality of life here on earth. There's a question in which the answer divides humanity into two groups. Those going to heaven and those not going to heaven. There's a question which cuts to the heart of our religiosity, cuts to all our formal practice. It cuts through everything. There's a question which each person must answer on our own. Your friends can't answer it for you. Your parents can't answer it for you. Your spouse can't answer it for you. Your employer can't answer it for you. Your children can't answer it for you. Only you can answer this question. 
So if you have your Bible, I want to invite you to open with me, please, to Matthew chapter 16. If you don't, there's one in the pew rack in front of you. Matthew chapter 16, we're going to start with verse 13. Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, the context of this passage is that Jesus and his disciples are in the northern part of Israel. They're in a place near Caesarea Philippi, a pagan city near the headwaters of the Jordan River. The springs bubbling up from the ground which create the Jordan River are right near that place. You can go there today. Sitting up on a carved section of the mountain, on the rock face, sat a pagan god, a statue. And pilgrims would come and pay homage to that statue. The entrance to the cave at the bottom of this rock face was also believed to be an entrance into the lower regions of of the earth, hell, Hades. And so there were pagan gods to the underworld there as well, and oftentimes sacrifices were made in honor of them and to pay homage to them. And so in the midst of this environment, Jesus asked his disciples a question. Verse 13, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now note he refers to himself as the Son of Man. He always refers to himself as the Son of Man. Although he called God his Father many times and he would say, my Father, and he addressed God as Father, it's the others who call him the Son of God. He refers to himself as the son of man. You see, from our human perspective, he is the son of God. But from his divine perspective, he's the son of man. He was always in the beginning. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came to being through him. You know the passage in John 1. He entered the human race, and from his perspective, became the son of man, son of a human. And so he refers to himself as the son of man. Of course, the prophet Daniel spoke about the son of man. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, Daniel says, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. The Son of Man. So Jesus asked, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And his disciples replied in verse 14, some say John the Baptist Others, Elijah, and others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Some say John the Baptist. Now, we must remember that a few chapters earlier in Matthew chapter 14, John the Baptist has been executed. He's been beheaded by King Herod. And many people thought that his spirit and his anointing was now on Jesus. Actually, Herod himself thought that Jesus was John the Baptist resurrected. We see that in Mark 6, 16. 
Others say Elijah. Remember Elijah, that awesome prophet from the Old Testament? He lived hundreds of years before Jesus and had a tremendous prophetic ministry. Remember, it was Elijah who passed his mantle on to Elisha, his disciple, and that same powerful Holy Spirit came upon him. Well, there were prophecies about Elijah, that his spirit and his mantle would be on the Messiah and that he would come before the great and terrible day of the Lord, Malachi 4.1. Now, Matthew's not told us yet what's going to happen in the next chapter. Remember what happens in Matthew 17? The transfiguration, Jesus goes up on the mountain, Peter, James, and John are with them, and the glory cloud descends and envelops him and the disciples, and who appears? Elijah and Moses. So the prophet Elijah does come. Others say Jeremiah. Well, he was also a great prophet from the Old Testament who lived hundreds of years before Jesus. Many Hebrew scholars associated Jeremiah with the coming of the Messiah because of Jeremiah 1.10, which reads, See, today I appoint you over nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. They saw this as a role for the Messiah and associated Jeremiah with it. Or one of the prophets, or one of the prophets, Because of what Jesus was saying and doing, many thought that he had to be one of the prophets from their Bible, from our Old Testament. Bible scholar Matthew Henry writes about this. He says, rather than allow Jesus of Nazareth, one of their own countrymen, to be such an extraordinary person as his works bespoke him to be, they would say, it was not he, but one of the old prophets. Uh, to get a sense of what was in the news at the time or the public thinking about Jesus, listen to this discussion in Mark chapter 16, verse 14. King Herod heard about this, Jesus sending the 12 apostles to minister healing and deliverance. For Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said, no, he's Elijah. And still others claimed he's a prophet, like one of the prophets long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, the man whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. So Jesus asked his disciples here in Philippi, who do people say the Son of Man is? Well, who do people in our culture say the Son of Man is? Your friends your business associates, your your family members, who do they say that he is? Well, we don't have to take a survey this morning, but I'm confident that we might hear some of the following answers of what you say your friends would say. Well, he's a religious guy. He started Christianity. He makes people dress up on Sunday morning and be religious. Some would say he's a great moral teacher. He had some brilliant things to say, He brought ethics and morality to a new level of sophistication. Some would say he was one of the greatest political reformers of all times. I mean, after all, his teachings and practice brought down the Roman Empire. Some would say he was a myth. There's no real historical data to prove this guy even lived. You Christians can't prove any of this, which is not true. Some would say, well, he's a cuss word very popular in many circles and in 
some of those places, that's all they know about him. Some would say he's a cosmic genie. He gets me what I need. He's the great Santa Claus in the sky. Now, others might say, well, he's an interesting fellow. Lots of folks seem attracted to him. He obviously has something to say. He's very interesting, but no relevance to my life. I don't see what all the fuss is about. I don't know why all these people get so hyped up about him. So what? Who do people say the Son of Man is? What do your friends say? Who do they say he is? You know, this is actually an important question because how can you share with them the answers about who Jesus is if you don't know what they're thinking? Well, Jesus now gets very personal with his disciples. Look at verse 15. He said to him, but who do you say that I am? James, who who do you say that I am? John, who do you say that I am? Peter, who do you say that I am? Philip, who do you say that I am? He asked all his disciples, but only one answers. Peter, in verse 16. Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, that is the Messiah. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Peter acknowledges that he's the Messiah, the son of the living God. Some people thought he was John the Baptist. The disciples know him as the Messiah, the son of the living God. Some people thought he was a prophet. The disciples know him as the Messiah, the son of the living God. Here in the presence of all these dumb and stiff idols at Caesarea Philippi, they acknowledge him as the Messiah, the son of the living God. Look at verse 17. And Jesus answered Peter, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Peter is commended, but look where Peter gets his knowledge from the Father of Jesus in heaven. He says, my father in heaven revealed this to you. The father opened his eyes, just like he opens our eyes. Jesus continues by telling Peter that this is what his church will be built on. Faith that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of the living God. And it's this faith that is the bedrock of what being a Christian is all about. It's not about our buildings, It's not about our religiosity. It's not about our liturgy and music and all these things are important. It's about faith in Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. And it's upon this rock that he will build his church. It's very interesting. There was a rock face where all these idols were, this rock that people had talked about. And Jesus is saying it's on this rock, faith in Jesus, that the church would be built on. One other important thing to note here Jesus here in front of what many in that day also thought was an entrance into hell, tells them that the gates of hell shall not prevail against his church and the bedrock of faith which is built upon it. All hell can throw at the church, it will not be overthrown. It might change, it might be persecuted, it might be deceived, it might be in despair, but the true church will never be prevailed against. And of course, the history of the past 2,000 years has shown this to be true. 
So what about you? Jesus asked, who do you say that I am? This is the most important question that you and I will ever answer. Who do you say that I am? All of us have to answer one way or another. We may put it off and that's an answer in itself, but all of us have to answer this question at some point. Peter's confession is the most simple, most solid, most direct creed of the Christian faith. Jesus, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. That's it. That summarizes it all. We say the Nicene Creed each Sunday, and that's a wonderful confession of the Christian faith. And yet, you could repeat Peter's confession and say it all. Jesus, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. However, no one can confess this for you. Like Peter, it has to be your confession, your answer to this most important question. I'd like to examine this question from two perspectives this morning. First, who do you say that I am? What do you really believe about him? What do you really understand and know about him? This is the faith which changes eternity. This is the faith which has changed history. This is the faith which the gates of hell cannot overcome. What do you say about him? John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And John says it another way in his epistle in 1 John chapter 5, verse 11. He says, and this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. He who has the son has life. He who does not have the son does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Who do you say that he is? Is he your Messiah? Is he your Savior? Is he your Lord? Who do you say that he is? Secondly, who do you say that he is? How do you speak of him? Who do you say that he is? Do you speak of him? Some people have faith, but they're afraid to even mention the Lord, to ever talk about him with others, to defend him in public, to to speak his name, to speak good of his name. Who do you say that he is? In Matthew chapter 10, verse 32, Jesus says this, Whoever acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever disowns me before men, I will disown him before my Father in heaven. For me, I began my public acknowledgement as a 12-year-old. I was on a summer camp up in the mountains of North Georgia with a church, and the associate pastor around the campfire one night began to explain about Jesus and why he came and why he died for our sins and how important it was to receive him into our life so that not only would we have forgiveness of sins, but we'd have eternal life. We'd be able to go to heaven. So there at the campfire, I asked him into my life. And it was a real thing. It was important. 
It was significant to me. And then I began high school. And for some reason, I never learned or no one ever said that your relationship with God is supposed to grow when you're in high school. And by the time I was a senior, I was in church on Sunday. I could quote some scripture, but the rest of the week, you couldn't tell I was a Christian. And so I go to a Young Life meeting and the the Young Life leader stands up and he gives this talk. And in the midst of this talk, he compares our life to a chest of drawers. He said, we have our family drawer, you know, chest of drawers like you put clothes in. He said, you got your family drawer, you got your religious drawer, your school drawer, your athletic drawer, your work drawer, all these different drawers of your life. And he says, what most people do is they put Jesus in a drawer marked religious. And when they want him around, they open the drawer. And when they don't, they close the drawer. He said, Jesus wants to be part of the whole chest. He wants to be in every drawer. He wants to be Lord. A few weeks later, I'm at a friend's church visiting And the the sermon that week was entitled, Jesus Christ, the Lord or my Lord. And the whole first part of the sermon was about the lordship of Jesus and how he's Lord of creation and Lord of the human race and Lord of the animals and on and on and on. And the last part of the sermon was about him being my Lord, my boss, my master, the one in charge of my life. See, what many people do is they like to have... Jesus as the co-pilot. You remember those bumper stickers yours, God is my co-pilot? He doesn't want to be the co-pilot. He wants to drive. But we want him as a friend, so we'll put him in the front seat, but we won't let him be Lord. We won't let him drive. Or we'll put him in the back seat. We'll serve him. We'll chauffeur him around. We're serving him, but we won't let him be Lord. Or what I used to like to do, I like to keep him in the trunk. And when I wanted him around, I opened the trunk. And when I didn't want him around, I closed the trunk. He wants to drive the car. He wants to be Lord. Well, after hearing that sermon, I went home that night and I got by my bed, knelt down, and I said a simple prayer. I don't know the exact words, but something to the effect of, Jesus, I want you to be the Lord of my life. I yield my will to you. I want you to be Lord, not just Savior. See, I understood him as Savior, as someone who forgave my sin. I understood him as a savior, someone that would keep me out of hell, but I wouldn't follow him as my Lord. He wasn't the master. And when I did that, I didn't have fireworks go off, but I had this peace that invaded my life. I knew that I was forgiven at that point. I knew that I had a relationship with him at that point. When I'd read the Bible, it would come alive. It would speak to me. When I'd pray, I didn't feel like I was just praying and my, my prayers were bouncing off the ceiling. I, there's a sense of God being present. And my life was transformed. And God took a, a street kid, and now I'm the archbishop, which is just crazy. I just can't. But more importantly than that, he washed away my sin. He took away the guilt. He filled my life with his peace and his joy and his love. He transformed me. Who do you say that he is? Is he your Messiah? Is he your Savior? Is he your Lord? This is the most important question you'll ever answer. One last thing here. The Apostle Peter got it. So often we won't and we don't. Ask the Father to help you get it. Ask him to help you 
Open your eyes. Ask him to give you ears to hear. Ask him to give you faith to believe. And like Peter, he will. Who do you say that I am? It's the most important question you'll ever answer. In the name of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Amen.